0: second reading uh, this morning is Acts chapter 8, I will read verses 9 through 25. Hear the word of God. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all... Paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, "This man is the power of God that is called Great." And they paid attention to him because, for a long time, he had am- had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, uh, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. In your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Professor Elaine Pagels of Princeton University and Professor Bart Ehrman of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, specialize in ancient Near Eastern religions. Now you might think that they would be nerdy academic types giving boring lectures at professional conferences and publishing specialized papers in academic journals. But in fact, Pagels and Ehrman are academic rock stars and they sell millions of books. They are members of that rare breed of scholar who attract attention From the non-academic world, their books are always on the New York Times bestseller list. They have catchy titles like Adam and Eve and the Serpent, colon, Sex and Politics in Early Christianity, or Misquoting Jesus, colon, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why, or The Origin of Satan, colon, How Christians Demonized Jews, Pagans, and Heretics. You may have noticed that if a book title has a colon in it, you know that it's been written by a professor. Pagels and Ehrman share a common thesis throughout all of their books. It goes something like this. Jesus is totally cool, but Christians are jerks. There used to be a whole bunch of cool people who followed Jesus, but the jerky Christians hijacked Jesus and they killed all the cool people. And then the church changed the Bible to cover their tracks. That's the basic thesis. And I'm actually not even being funny. There is a real attraction to books with titles like Reading Judas, colon, The Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity. There's a real attraction to books like that for a couple of reasons. First, it's just fun to be in the know, it's fun to be woker than thou. If you read the book, then you are hip to the massive conspiracy that ordinary people are still fooled by. Which is cool. It's fun. And second, if the word of God has ever stung you or convicted you of your own sin, then these books will relieve you of that sting and conviction by telling you that the Bible has been hopelessly mangled and misinterpreted by the uncooled church. Now the remarkable part... ...of this kind of unveiling of vast ancient conspiracies... ...is that it is people living 2,000 years after the events that are being talked about... ...who claim to know more than the people who were actually there. Pagels and Ehrman claim to know more about Jesus than Peter and Paul. Well, no wonder they get to be professors at big-name universities... Pagels and Ehrman and a host of lesser lights writing in the same vein focus on the eccentric or the non-standard interpretations of the gospel. We call those eccentric or non-standard readings of the gospel heresy. As long as there has been a church, there has been heresy. And part of the work of the church in every era is to define and to defend the doctrine of the church against heresy. Some heretics are wrong simply because they're naive or uneducated. Some of them are wrong because they are evil. But the church has always had the job in each successive generation of stating clearly the basic teaching of Jesus which was delivered by the apostles. And in each generation, there will be a few oddballs who get the gospel wrong, sometimes innocently and sometimes evilly. Now, while I understand the psychological attraction of the work of people like Pagels and Ehrman, it seems to me that this strategy of focusing on heretics to get at the truth of Jesus is a little like quoting flat earth websites to get at the truth of the shape of our planet. Yes, it is true. There are people today, people who do not live in insane asylums, people who believe that the earth is shaped like a pancake. They publish websites and pamphlets. They hold conventions. They make YouTube videos. But imagine if a historian two millennia from now were to look back on our time and focus on those flat earth people and draw the conclusion that, oh yes, in the 21st century in America, people believed that the earth was shaped like a pancake. That would be a very strange conclusion. It would also be dishonest scholarship. So, yes, there were people... In Jesus' time who had strange ideas about him. But for Pagels and Ehrman to focus on these eccentric characters in the name of biblical scholarship is a little like turning a scientific lecture into a freak show. It makes for bestsellers, but it doesn't make for the truth. A large number of of the people who had eccentric or heretical ideas about Jesus were called Gnostics. They take their name from the Greek word for knowledge because they claimed to have secret knowledge about Jesus. Oh sure, Peter and and Paul and James and John are saying those things about Jesus in the New Testament, but come listen to us and we'll give you the real story. It was fun to be part of a Gnostic group because you too got to be in on the secret. And there was a secret initiation ceremony which made you one of the special people. Simon, sometimes known as Simon Magus, shows up in our reading in the Acts of the Apostles this morning. He was the father of Gnosticism according to Irenaeus, a second century church father. Irenaeus tells us that Simon had a wife named Helena whom he declared to be, quote, the incarnation of the divine mind from whom angelic powers and the material universe have proceeded. According to Justin Martyr, another second-centric church father, a statue in Rome was dedicated to Simon, the holy God. Simon was kind of a big deal. Maybe you never heard of him before, but certainly people in Samaria knew about this man. He was a magician, not a pen and teller kind of magician, but a Harry Potter kind of magician. And scripture tells us that he was amazing. But then Philip, the evangelist, Philip the deacon shows up in Samaria. He's gone to Samaria because of the persecution led by Saul of Tarsus that's broken out against the church in Jerusalem. Christians are scattering. And as they scatter, they go and preach the gospel along the way. And they do signs and wonders wherever they went. As we read last week, when Philip shows up, people who had demons were released from their bondage. And people who were paralyzed or lame were healed. In this city in Samaria, there had been one wonder worker, Simon the magician. But now there were two, Simon and Philip. And people began to listen to Philip and to believe the message of the gospel that he brought. And what he taught was simple, that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God, that he had been sent by God into the world, that he was killed by those who rejected his message, but God raised him from the dead, conquering once and for all death and the power of sin by faith in Jesus Christ and in his atoning sacrifice anyone can be born again. They can be forgiven of their sins. They can be adopted as sons and daughters of God himself and they can inherit eternal life. If Philip's preaching followed the model of Peter's then he probably also explained how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. We read in verse 12 they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. The way the author of Acts tells the story, the city of Samaria was bewitched by Simon and his magic, but when Philip shows up, preaching the gospel, confirmed by signs and wonders, they turn to Simon, and they begin to follow Jesus. And wonder of wonders, Simon himself, converts verse 13 says even simon himself believed and was baptized and adhered to philip simon a wonder worker simon a magician seems to have been dazzled by the wonders worked by philip and Philip must have remained in Samaria for a good long time because word of the mass conversions going on there got back to the apostles in Jerusalem and the apostles sent out a delegation to check on these new baby Christians. We read in verses 14 through 17, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When Peter and John came down, they prayed for the converts, asking that they might receive the Holy Spirit. As yet, he, the Holy Spirit, had not fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of discussion among biblical scholars about what that passage means, I mean, how is it that the Samaritans can believe and be baptized and still not have the Holy Spirit? Are there two classes of Christians? You know, those who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't. Do we receive the Holy Spirit as a second baptism? As an additional blessing? If you grew up in a Pentecostal or and assemblies of God congregation you were taught that the receiving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event one that comes after you've been born again certainly this passage in Acts chapter 8 looks like it supports that idea now I don't want to settle that question in this sermon but let me say this the majority of Christians believe that every Christian has received the Holy Spirit The majority say that when we are converted, when we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us. Every Christian is spirit-filled. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the PhD level of Christianity. Receiving the Holy Spirit is the beginning of the Christian life, the ABCs of the faith. No one becomes a Christian unless the Holy Spirit comes first. What is clear from this passage is that when Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritan Christians, those Christians began to display the kind of Pentecostal power that we see throughout the Acts of the Apostles. The Greek word dunamis, which means power, and is where we get the word dynamite, this Greek word dunamis is used again and again in the Acts of the Apostles to To describe the dynamic power that Christians displayed. It was a power that caught people's attention. Because people who had been poor and downtrodden and fearful all of a sudden uh, were more fully alive, were fully confident, were completely fearless, were totally focused. This was the power that caused the church to spread and flourish and change the world in spite of murderous opposition, Holy Spirit power. Simon saw that power and he wanted it for himself and he offered money to receive it. In verse 18 and 19 we read, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands, he offered them money. Give me also this authority, he says, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting. It's very, very revealing. Simon's reaction to the power of the Holy Spirit is very revealing about his own spirit, about the condition of Simon's heart. And by the way, if you're asleep now, please wake up because you need to hear this next part. There are some religious people who embrace the faith because it brings them power. Yes, of course, we love to wag our fingers at church leaders who use the church or use the power invested in them by the church to aggrandize themselves or to puff themselves up, to enrich themselves, to give themselves the things that the flesh always craves. Sex and money are at the top of the list, of course, but political power is equally tempting. Jerry Falwell Jr. is the latest to go down in flames. There are some religious people who embrace the faith because it brings them power. Simon is simply an early example of this. But we, rather than looking at those sensational examples of high-flying church people who get into trouble, we rather should focus on ourselves. Simon wanted the Holy Spirit because he saw its power. And he wanted that power. But how many of us turn to religion because of what it will do for us? Look, we are living in a stressed out moment in history. This COVID mess, the ongoing racial and political strife all have us stressed out. We're stressed out and we're all a little depressed because we're not having... A healthy diet of human interaction that keeps us sane. When all is said and done, the mental health consequences of the COVID crisis may outstrip the physical consequences. And in times of stress, there are always people who turn to God to relieve their suffering. In times of stress, there are people who adopt spiritual practices or meditation to give themselves peace and serenity. Now, I firmly believe that going to church regularly will improve your mental health and your overall happiness. Many, many scientific studies have demonstrated the public health benefits of going to church. I wish the CDC would talk about those studies more. Gosh, I wish governors would mandate attending worship once a week for the public health purpose. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, of course. I don't want the government involved in the church. But from a public health perspective, living as a faithful, church-going Christian is a really good idea that is borne out scientifically. The Christian life is the best life. It's the most satisfying It's the happiest. It's the healthiest. It's the most productive. It's the most life-enhancing way to live. But hear me well, if those are the reasons that I'm a Christian, then I'm on the road to hell, like Simon. If I'm a Christian because it energizes my life, then I'm trying to exploit the power that God offers. The power of happiness, the power of prosperity, the power of serenity. If that's why I claim to be a Christian, then I'm treating God like a vending machine or a servant boy or as Karl Marx would have it, as an opioid to take away the pain of the moment. Do not love God because of his benefits. Love him because he's your father. Do not worship God because he gives you good stuff worship him because he is god because he is worthy because it would be perverse to not worship him Now, that's a tricky thing that i'm saying here because i do want everyone to know how sweet it is to have a genuine faith in jesus christ i do want everyone to know the benefits that come from living out that faith But if my eye is focused on the gift and not the giver, then I am not in a relationship with God. Simon believed. That's what the Bible says. Simon believed and was baptized. He was amazed. But Simon did not have a saving faith. Simon wanted the things that God could give him. He heard the message. He believed in the truth of the message. He saw the miracles. He knew that they were real. But he did not love and honor and worship God. He saw God merely as a source of power to be exploited. And that, of course, is the root of all paganism, of all quid pro quo religion. Peter rebukes Simon... He says, you have no share in this matter for your heart is not upright before God. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord that your heart, that the thought of your heart may be forgiven. So I wonder how many of us need to pray that prayer of repentance. Have we been using God for our own purposes? Have we loved God and thanked Him only when we get what we want? Do we love God because of His good gifts? Do we become bitter toward God when what we receive from His providential hand is hard? You know, we're really starting to fire up the work of the Go Center here at HVPC. Next week, Ken Pretty of the ghost center will be with us he'll be preaching the ghost center is our denominations church growth and vitality consulting group last fall the leadership of our church made the decision to enter into a two-year contract with the ghost center when we realized that we had gone backwards in the previous year for the first time after 13 years of steady progress That was a wise and strategic decision. And it came in God's perfect timing. But if we enter into a process of church revitalization because of what it will do for us, then we have our eyes on the wrong goal. If we want to grow this church because... Uh, It makes us feel happier to worship with more people because it improves our financial position, because it allows us to have bigger and better programs. If our goal in entering this process of church revitalization is to seek our own happiness and glory, then we have our eyes on the wrong goal. Healthy churches grow. That's just what they do. And they do it naturally because in a healthy church we have our eyes on christ and not on ourselves because in a healthy church we are overcome with love for god and the worship of god just pours out of us because in a healthy church we are so filled with the holy spirit so enraptured of god so in love with god's word so thrilled with god's kingdom that god's love and joy and peace and patience and self-control just manifest themselves. And that fruit of the Holy Spirit grows at church. It evaporates divisions and factions. It attracts hurting and wounded people. It goes out to seek and to save those who are lost. I love this church. And I know you love it too. But my prayer for myself and for all of you is that we love God more. It's possible to love your church but not love God. It's possible to seek the advancement of your congregation but not the advancement of God's kingdom. It happens all of the time. But here's the good news. If we love God with all our heart and mind and strength... Our church will flourish. And our church will grow again. I knew a man at uh, our previous church who had a great desire for the gift of healing. He had seen Benny Hinn on television and had this deep desire to have the power to lay hands on people and have them be healed. I understand that desire. One of the privileges of my calling as your pastor is that I spend a lot of time with people who are suffering. And while I always pray that God will relieve their suffering, I would love to have that power. The power that Paul and Peter and John had to lay hands on the sick and have them be healed. Who wouldn't want that power? But what I should want even more than that power is to be in the abiding presence of the source of that power, to know the sweet and steady fellowship with my Father and the Creator of the universe. What I should want even more than that power is to glorify God, to honor Him, to sing His praises, to join my voice... With the heavenly voices that are constantly, even in this moment, singing hallelujah. They're praising God and singing glory to the Lamb. This Lamb who spoke the world into existence, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who holds the whole world up by His will and by His power. Now it's not an either or. I believe that when we stand right with God, Peter tells us that Simon's heart was not... Right before God. When we stand right with God, then everything else that is right and good and holy and healthy will follow in its wake. God is the breath of life. If I pursue God like a ravenous lover, then what can I possibly lack? This sermon was written rather late, late this week because I had a busy week. But one night while I was lying in bed thinking about the sermon that I hadn't written, I was thinking about the 23rd Psalm, which we all know. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Nothing I need will be missing. I will be fully provided for. So many are starving, starving for money, starving for love, starving for purpose, starving for respect, but with the good shepherd I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. God's provisions are so different from what the world offers, so different from what the flesh thinks that it needs grass and water and a peaceable environment good things that are suited to our nature as sheep god knows exactly what we need he restoreth my soul he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake we need to be in church every week to have our souls restored we get beaten down and worn out all week long. We don't need a spa to rejuvenate us. We don't need some retail therapy to pick us up. We need God. And his leading in the paths of righteousness, doing the right thing each and every time, that keeps us safe, but it also brings honor and glory to God's name. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yes, death is part of this life. And even in the extreme of the shadow of death, even in the worst that this life can throw at us, even there we have no fear. We're comforted. We're comforted because God is with us and because his shepherds' tools guide us and keep us safe. Thou preparest a table. Before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Today we gather at the Lord's table. We do it publicly. And in full view of the enemy. And at this table Christ lavishes us with good food and rich wine. We are filled. We are satisfied. We are anointed. We are blessed. We are full to overflowing. And then the verse I love best. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Christian life is a whole life. It's a long life and it leads into an eternal life. The Christian life is not a momentary high. It's not an escape from reality. The Christian life is the deepest life, the truest life, the realest life, and it never ends. Now, the 23rd Psalm reads like a sales brochure for the Christian life, all the benefits for those who are in Christ. And unlike some sales brochures, this one is 100% true. But notice this. This isn't a psalm about the benefits of the Christian life. This is a psalm of praise and worship to God from whom all blessings flow. I want you to be blessed. I want you to have the Holy Spirit. I want you to have His power. But what I want for you above all else, because He is the endless source of those blessings and that Spirit and that power, what I want you to have above all else is Christ. I want you to be united with Christ through faith. Yes, the benefits of union with Christ are, are numberless, but the real treasure is Christ Himself. To Him be all glory in the church. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you and we thank you for Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the pearl of great price, that he is the treasure for which we should sell everything. Lord God, give us the faith to cling to Christ with a saving faith. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the power to live Father God, we ask that our lives,